Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to the FT's World Weekly. I'm Daniel Dombey. In retrospect, it was an ambush hiding in plain sight. Theresa May left the EU's Salzburg summit last week, isolated and in trouble. Her Brexit plan to retain closer ties with the bloc roundly rejected and facing a stiff deadline of just a few weeks to resolve an Irish question that is political dynamite in the UK. So where does this leave Brexit with just six months to go before the UK's scheduled exit? And what does it mean for Mrs May's vaunted Chequers plan, which has been rejected at home and scorned abroad? Is it really dead? I'm joined by Alex Barker, our Brussels bureau chief, and George Parker, our political editor, currently in Liverpool with the Labour Party conference. George, if I can begin with you, why was Salzburg such a horrendous experience for Mrs May? Well, I think it was lots to do with the expectations that are built up before the Salzburg summit. There have been lots of the usual preparation of a summit between uh, London and Brussels. And it was generally agreed that it was in, in the interest of both sides that Theresa May should come away from Salzburg in a stronger position than when she arrived. In other words, that the EU, although very uncomfortable or even opposed to many aspects of a Chequers plan, would say that it at least represented a step forward, evolution of the British position and something that could be talked about in future. And that would give Theresa May a bit of ammunition go into what's going to be a very difficult Conservative Party conference starting in Birmingham on September the 30th. That all seemed to be agreed, and that was the, uh, the choreography that had been intended. Theresa May stayed behind after the summit for a press conference where she was expected to use this as a platform to say, this goes to show my plan is starting to work. Instead of which, uh, it was widely seen in British circles, at least, as a, an ambush by the EU that um, plan was denounced by Donald Tusk, the European uh, Council president, and she came back to London battered and bruised and facing more demands from Tory Eurosceptics that she should abandon her plan altogether. So basically it didn't go to plan, even though the things that Donald Tusk and others were saying in Salzburg were the kind of things people said publicly and privately in Brussels for many weeks. And Alex, what was the substance of the problems at Salzburg in terms of what they said about why checkers wouldn't work and what they said about what she needs to do on this so-called Irish backstop? Well, there's two issues. There's one that was the tone of the response to checkers. And there, I think some of the EU side didn't necessarily intend it to have the kind of cut through that it did have in in the UK. Donald Tusk was very firm. uh, But as George said, he was repeating a lot of points in terms of substance that had been made for many weeks and months. The, The thing that moved in terms of the negotiation was really this issue of sequencing and the, the, the horizon for when they, they see a deal being done. And before the summit, they talked about November. Uh, there's a summit coming up in October, but the general feeling was that it wasn't enough time to pull together the deal by then and that they'd need a second summit. Um, and in the room in Salzburg, uh, particularly uh, Emmanuel Macron, but also the Irish, uh, the Spanish, um, were very strong in pushing the idea that they shouldn't relax the pressure on the UK and let London just play this November summit so everything comes together on one night. They wanted to keep up the pressure and that's where you saw Donald Tusk say, look, 
will decide whether we're going to have another summit if the UK has made enough progress in October to show that we're on track and the show we're on track particularly on this issue of the Irish backstop, which is really by far the hardest issue to be resolved. And George, tell us about the aftermath and what's happening right now. I mean, there have been movements in both the Tory and the Labour parties in Britain in response to what's happened at Salzburg. Now that people were perhaps a little bit more jittery about no deal and certainly about the prospect of Mrs May's plan being agreed, how is that playing itself out in British politics? Well, she came back and there was a council of war, I think probably it's fair to say, in Downing Street the next day. And it was decided the best thing for her to do would be to come out on the front foot. And she held a press conference, or actually it wasn't a press conference at all. It was a statement delivered to nobody at all apart from the cameras in Downing Street, where she basically, I thought, came out of it rather well. She basically said that um, she treated the EU with respect and she expected the same in return. I think people in Downing Street were sort of grasping at the fact that Donald Tusk had tweeted or put out an Instagram post Slightly mocking of Theresa May, and I think that she emerged from that a lot better. I think um, you know people thought that her response to that was quite good. But the key thing is that she insisted that her checkers plan was still on the table. There was a cabinet meeting a few days later where, again, the cabinet, despite a bit of an advance billing that there would be a cabinet mutiny on checkers, agreed that now was the time to hold their nerve and to keep going on the same path, even if in the end it may lead nowhere. I suppose so. Theresa May limping into the Conservative Party conference, probably in slightly better shape than she left Salzburg, but nevertheless, it's going to be a difficult, difficult four or five days for her in Birmingham. You have Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg, two leading Eurosceptics on the conference fringe, commanding audiences of hundreds of people all there to hear the mantra, Chuck Checkers, this compromise plan that Theresa May has come up with. So it's going to be a difficult few days for her. Uh, and I'm speaking to you from the Labour Party conference, the opposition party, where they've been discussing Brexit all week, quite a divisive issue in the Labour Party as well. Um, the Labour Party is committed to pushing for a new general election if Theresa May can't get a plan through Parliament. If that doesn't work, they're going to push for a second referendum. And they've just about left on the table the idea that if there was a second referendum, that Remain could be one of the questions. So Labour tentatively suggesting that there's a chance in very certain circumstances that Brexit could be reversed, but I still think that's quite a long shot. Now, Alex, George has summoned up the idea of a British spirit of deciding to keep down the same path, even if it doesn't lead anywhere. Um, so tell us about the Chequers plan. Is it really dead or is it kind of one like one of those kind of horror show villains that, you know, you stab it, you swipe it, you put it in water and yet it still isn't quite over? Certainly, you've seen a hardening on both sides to some extent. And the EU leaders didn't take well to Theresa May's presentation in Salzburg because it was kind of checkers or nothing was very clear cut about the Irish backstop potentially splitting the UK and there wasn't much patience for those messages among the EU leaders and you can see them for that reason kind of ratcheting up the pressure and over the next few weeks it has certainly raised the risk that you could see this take a course that the negotiators weren't planning where you know the, the deal looks further away than rather than closer does checkers survive this it de- <laughs> depends how you define checkers the eu were never going to buy into checkers in this political declaration that's made at the end of this process in a way that kind of says well look we've revised our principles for the eu so that we can make this hybrid special arrangement work with the uk The idea of checkers is that you can reach some kind of arrangement at the end of this where May can plausibly go back to the Commons and say, 
this backstop for Ireland doesn't need to be employed. I found a way through. And that can be done through aspirational language rather than a kind of conclusive deal. And that may well still be on the table, but they've got some work to do in terms of patching up trust and really accelerating the, these talks in a way that can bring together a deal. Right. I'm going to ask you just both to finish up just a question that probably you don't want to answer. But uh, in George's case, what would you say is the maximum t- moment of danger for Mrs May? Is it in the negotiations we've talked about or is it really um, when she has to get whatever deal she's reached through the House of Commons? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's the second of those two things. Um, I'm still, you know, if I was putting money on it, I still think that Theresa May will get a deal in Brussels of some sort. But you look at where the interests of all the key parties lie. Britain needs a deal for obvious reasons. The Irish government need a deal because they need a free trade with the the UK, East West, and of course with Northern Ireland. And the European Union wants a deal because they want to keep free trade flowing between uh, the EU and what will become their largest export market. So the interests in getting a deal are huge, and the interests in avoiding a no deal are, are also huge as well. The biggest problem for Theresa May, yes, as you say, is really when she comes back with that deal and presents it for approval in the House of Commons, because then the arithmetic is entirely unpredictable. You know, you have Jacob Rees-Mogg talking about voting down any deal that has any checkers element in it, and it's possible you could have 40, 50, 60 Conservative MPs voting against it. The Labour Party almost certainly will vote against it as well. So that is the moment of maximum danger. She comes back from Brussels, presents the deal to Parliament. Will it be accepted? I still think there's a reasonably good chance Parliament will accept it, because the alternatives for the Eurosceptics, frankly, at that point, are even worse. The deal may be the best on the table at the time, but, you know, it depends on lots of people acting in rational ways. And that hasn't always been a hallmark of the way that the Conservative Party has behaved when it comes to Europe. Excellent. And euphemistically uh, in that vein, can we move then to Alex? Alex, when this all finally comes out in the wash, where do you think Britain's relationship with Europe is going to be? I mean, after all, we're not really going to establish a final arrival point in this year's negotiations, but what's your sense of where the workable long-term relationship between Britain and Brussels really is going to be? If we're assuming that there's a withdrawal agreement, an orderly exit, then really on the other side of Brexit, I would say most of the fundamental questions and choices that Britain has to make about its relationship with the EU would still be pretty much open. That goes for you know whether or not it's a customs union. That goes for the level of alignment we would have with EU rules, how integrated the UK is with the EU. Those are questions that will really be debated for many years still in British politics. What we'll have is a model for leaving the EU for kind of seeing out the old obligations that we had and a sense of direction for the negotiators who will pick up the baton after Brexit Day. And I think it's really worth remembering uh, at every time Brexit kind of tensions rise or the noise increases that the EU see this as a negotiation of two halves at least. And the first one is about some a, a member state leaving the club And in that process, you've got to define what the club stands for. And it's a political question, first and foremost. Uh, In the second stage of this, they're thinking, how do we structure a relationship with the EU's most important third country partner, most important trade partner? And then the the calculations change, the approach changes, and it's really two halves. And uh, sometimes we expect too much to be done 
before Brexit Day, it feels like. Excellent. So there you have the combined wisdom of the FT's uh, Brussels bureau chief and uh, political editor. It's a game of two halves. The second half may be the decisive one, but until then, goodbye from us all. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.